Welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we uncover the history all around us. As always, we're your hosts, Robin Mullins and Nick Bridges. Unfortunately, our other wonderful co-host, Keely McCabot, is unable to join us this week. So filling in for her, we have a special guest host and fellow No History staff member, Nick Johnston. Thanks for joining us for another episode, Nick. Thank you for having me back. I'm surprised. <laughs> you were back by popular demand, Nick. We, we got to give the people what they want. It's true. Well, I did happen to already do some research on this topic, so it works out. That's true. We've brought you in specifically for two episodes that you have a lot of knowledge on. I have a lot of knowledge on strange things. <laughs> but luckily, they all work really well for this podcast, so we're happy to have you. I'm excited to talk about stuff. So before we jump into today, we do have two Nicks as my co-hosts, so to help differentiate... We will be using the no history method of differentiating between them, which is to call our regular co-host, Nick Bridges, by Nick B, and the other Nick, our guest Nick, by Nick J. Sound good to you both? Yeah. I mean, I like the idea that we're slowly fusing together, but fine, separate us. Yeah, if we have to be, uh, if we have to be different, if we have to be distinct, let it be. All right. Sounds good. We'll see how it works. Yeah. <laughs> communicated in a variety of mediums. Besides academic articles and monographs, TV shows, film, and novels often turn to history for inspiration. Song is another such medium, though it can easily be overlooked when thinking about historical accounts. Thankfully, we have many examples, especially within Canada, of history being put to music. Gordon Lightfoot, Stomp and Tom Connors, Wade Hemsworth, and my personal favorite, Stan Rogers, are more than just celebrated musicians. In their own ways, they have each undertaken the task of transmitting history to the public. These artists, along with many others, have demonstrated how effectively and enjoyably history can be communicated through music. This week, we're going to notice the history in folk music. So let's take a look at a few styles of songs that have historical content, and then we'll examine what makes this means of presenting history so unique. Sounds good. Actually, before we get into too much, Nick, Jay, can you maybe tell us a little bit about your background in this very interesting topic? Absolutely. I came to this topic somewhere around 2010 when I was uh, given the opportunity to be a research assistant for Professor, uh, the late Professor Joseph Scanlon. Professor Scanlon was uh, one of Canada's leading experts on uh, disasters. He began his career as a journalist and moved into uh, sociology, looking at disasters, and then uh, sort of turned historian when he became uh, interested in disasters through uh, some events we'll talk about later that occurred with the uh, song The Wreck of the Edmunds Fitzgerald by Gordon Lightfoot. So I got to work with him on a project where we looked at mining disaster songs in Nova Scotia and the Maritimes and tried to figure out how accurate these songs were to the historical events that they uh, were about. I hope we'll get into some of the reasonings that we discovered for that later on. Definitely. Uh, we'll get into the nitty-gritty. Excellent. We'll open with historical songs as nostalgia and protest. With the artistic liberties that music allows, songs about history have had the ability to become a rallying point for various contemporary ideals about Canada. Uh, songs about the past inspire us to think about who we are, where we've been, and what we want to be. 
music has an important role in both upholding our narratives about the past and in shaking them up. When we think of songs in history that rose to the forefront of public consciousness, we might think of Woodstock and anti-war sentiments, of anthems of the civil rights movement, or the long-standing legacy of John Lennon's Imagine. War. What is it good for? Apparently communicating history through music. But Canada also has a legacy of protest music in the songs of Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Buffy St. Marie, and more. In many cases, protest music builds on Canada's history to prove a point about current events. These powerful retellings of past events can become fuel that inspires or supports a movement. Willie Dunn's 1973 single, I Pity the Country, highlighted the historical and contemporary hardships faced by Indigenous peoples in Canada through the government, the church, and corporations like the Hudson's Bay Company. In more recent years, Winnipeg songwriter Greg McPherson's Company Store brings to light the violence of Canadian labour history and the contemporary struggles of the average worker through his grandfather's experience as a coal miner in Nova Scotia. Among the most prolific Canadian artists to use history as source material was the beloved Kingston band The Tragically Hip. Interestingly, their discography paints Canada in both a critical and a nostalgic light. Their songs bring to mind the joy of Canada's great sports victories, such as the song Fireworks, and the pace of small town living in Bob Cajun. But they also include somber reminders of past failures of the Canadian justice system, such as Wheat Kings, and the legacy of colonialism in Looking for a Place to Happen. Both Canada's more nostalgic and more critical musical legacies continue to shape national identity and public memory. So should we jump into Canada's most prolific folk hero? I mean, who decides who that is, Nick? Nick B. <laughs> uh, I, I, think, um, I think it's a collective decision that I'm just speaking on behalf of. Okay. It's, a, it's a real, like, it's, it's this feeling just moving through me. All right, because I've, I have some, some bones of contention with some of these. I mean, these are all great. They're all amazing. They're all amazing. But amazing. some of my favorites, as I've already said, specifically Stan Rogers, we don't really talk about him too much. So don't worry. I'm going to talk about him later because the we'll, people need to know. We'll talk about him and then you'll listen to him. <laughs> it's true. And also, yeah, anyways, we'll get into it. But first, Stompin' Tom Connors. Born Charles Thomas Connors in 1936, he's best known today for songs such as The Good Old Hockey Game, Bud the Spud, and Sudbury Saturday Night. Stompin' Tom's songs are composed almost exclusively of Canadian content. Connors' songs are often about specific locations and cultural or economic activities that took place in these specific communities. Other songs by Connors hone in on specific events from Canada's history. A prime example includes Connor's 1972 song, The Bridge Came Tumbling Down, an ode to the 19 men who lost their lives in June 1958 while building the Ironworkers Memorial Second Narrows Crossing Bridge that crosses Burrard Inlet that connects Vancouver with the North Shore. Connor's song includes the location and date of the bridge's collapse, the number of men who fell, which was 79, and the number of men who ultimately lost their lives from the tragedy, 19. More specific details, such as descriptions of the men who drowned, of which there were 14 ironworkers, three engineers, a painter, and a diver who died while trying to recover a body two days after the collapse, are not included in the lyrics, for example. In addition to a few historical facts, Connor's song ultimately conveys feelings surrounding the tragedy through lyrics such as, Now if you're ever crossing this mighty bridge sublime, and 19 scarlet roses may pass before your mind, remember and be kind. 
for the bridge came tumbling down and 19 men were drowned. So you could ride to the other side of old Vancouver town. It's pretty powerful stuff. It really is. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting as well, as we'll talk about later, the facts that are left out are events that occurred after the actual disaster is common when looking at songs like this. Songwriters tend to focus on the actual event that makes news and tend to leave out what happened before and after. I can see how that would maybe be a simpler way of doing it. There's there's only so much that you can fit into a song in the first place and then also to speak about or sing about in a memorable way or to make meaningful. If you're trying to communicate something or some memory or some feeling attached to a tragedy, it would be difficult to also get all of the subsequent aspects of every news story that followed it. Absolutely. And music is is limited by the, the fact that its medium is generally a lot shorter in scope and the amount of time that is, it can devote to any particular topic. A uh, movie or TV shows, given two hours, a song, you're usually upward of five minutes is considered long. Yeah, and so. there's repetition within it as well, right? So you have to build in the time that you're losing by having a chorus. Not every song has a chorus, but a lot of them do. I think it's a unique medium too, though, because especially with these Stomp and Tom lyrics, you can see how it gets at emotion around an event where a sort of typical history book written by uh, a prof somewhere wouldn't necessarily get at that emotion in the same way and wouldn't inspire those same feelings. It also wouldn't be as easy to remember necessarily, right? When you hear a song, there's just something about music that lends itself to being more memorable. It's easier to to sing along to. It's easier to remember the lyrics. We all know so many songs. Some Sometimes I know songs that I don't even know what they're called or who they're sung by, but they just kind of burrow into my brain and stay there forever. And so when you're using music to convey history, I think that's really powerful because it opens up so much ability to uh, stay with people and really resonate with them. Absolutely. And I think for songwriters, the challenge of, of creating this uh, narrative that depicts history accurately, if that's what they're choosing to aim for, and at the same time manages to evoke the emotions that most likely they or others around them were feeling at the time of uh, the events that they're trying to discuss, or that they imagined were being felt at the time, it's going to be very difficult to bring forward in such a compact package. Yeah, it's a tall order. So it's impressive that we have not one, but several famous Canadians who've put history to music. Uh, when we were doing our research on uh, mining disaster songs, uh, we came up with a list of no less than 300 songs about mining disasters in the Canadian Maritimes. Wow. That's a lot. It is a lot. It's really unfortunate about the number of... Because that... In, that seems to suggest that there were also a lot of mining disasters, which is also really unfortunate. It's also a darker spot in uh, maritime history, though thankfully a lot of those songs were written about the same disasters. Oh, okay. So not it's not like, like there were 300 mining disasters. There very well may have been, but not all of them got songs written about them. This got dark. <laughs> be, be very thankful for labor laws and unions. Yes. Exactly. Another Canadian folk artist, Gordon Lightfoot, has also written on disasters in Canadian history, specifically the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. It was based on the then-recent marine disaster that was the sinking of the SS Edmund Fitzgerald, an American Great Lakes freighter which sunk in a storm on Lake Superior on November 10, 1975, while transporting a cargo of iron ore pellets. All 29 crew were killed in the incident, and the SS Edmund Fitzgerald remains the largest vessel to sink on the Great Lakes. The exact cause of the sinking remains a mystery. 
though slow examination of the wreck has narrowed the options. Lightfoot based his song upon the Newsweek article, The Cruelest Month, by James R. Gaines and John Lowell. In interviews since, he's noted that he strove for accuracy with the song, using facts in the article, some additional research, and his own experience in sailing on the Great Lakes to describe the events as they happened or how they were most likely to have occurred. But in the end, he settled for a good story, to use his words, over a perfectly accurate account. I think that's fascinating that he actually drew upon his own experiences sailing on the Great Lakes because history does have a performative nature to it and a narrative nature to it. So by basing some of his song, or at least some of the ways that he's interpreting, and he he says he's interpreting what was most likely to have occurred, he's using his experiences to tell and to shape history, which is what historians do, but it's not something that, it seems like a very technical thing, a technical part of history that wouldn't necessarily be thought of by other people and by people who aren't, you know, as obsessed with history as some of us maybe. Um, So I think that's fascinating. It it certainly gives the song um, some authenticity. Definitely. That he can put his experiences and his understanding into it. In the same way that if a historian was writing on, like, uh, let's say, a, a foreign country, they might go to that country to understand it better. And Lightfoot's not alone in this. A lot of folk singers who have written about disasters in particular often have some kind of tie to the place they're writing about. Some don't. Some are just driven or find the story creates a certain emotion in them that they want to express. But uh, many have little ties to the town or are familiar with the type of work being done or have some other kind of personal connection that drives them to, to address this, the events in, in their music. It just goes to show that it really is history making. These may not be trained historians, and it could even just be that this is the only history song that they'll ever write out of the many songs that they will go on to write and perform. But by making these decisions, these are decisions that historians make. These are things historians think about. These are really important aspects of you know memory building and memory shaping that go on in our community, and also just any time that we transmit history to anyone else. To bring it back to the Edmund Fitzgerald, the errors in the song are actually quite minor. And twice in the song's history, Lightfoot has actually altered the lyrics to fit with new information about the wreck. After visiting the Mariner's Church of Detroit, referred to as the Maritime Sailor's Cathedral in the song, Lightfoot decided he incorrectly referred to the church as a musty old hall in the lyrics and later changed it to a rustic old hall. That's fascinating that, that it's actually like a living song that he's choosing to change and alter and amend as you know new research comes to light or new experiences. Absolutely. And the next change that he made to the song was actually what prompted Joe Scanlon to uh, begin looking into this, which led to me getting hired. So, <laughs> so tell us about it, Nick That worked Jay. out well. In 2010, after a research team from the National Geographic proved from studying the wreck that the ship had broken in half and sank, Lightfoot Lightfoot decided to alter the lyrics slightly. You see, the fact that the ship had broken in half ran contrary to the lyrics of Lightfoot's song, which suggested that improperly secured hatches had been to blame. Lightfoot quickly decided to update the lyrics accordingly. On the original song recording, the line of note reads... At 7 p.m., the main hatchway caved in. Lightfoot changed the lyric to, At 7 p.m., it grew dark, it was dim. Lightfoot admits that while this change was in part to keep the song as historically accurate as possible, 
He had also been troubled by the lyric from the start, as it suggested negligence on, on the part of the sailors in securing the hatches, which made the song difficult for him to perform in front of maritime audiences and particularly the families of the victims. That makes sense. And that's also another interesting aspect of history making, right? As historians, people who are writing down and recording histories, if it is a more recent event, often there are survivors or there are witnesses or, or people who have a really strong emotional tie to an event. And the way that it's recorded by historians can be really difficult and really complicated for those people. You know, it's it's not always writing about something that happened 400 years in the past. Sometimes it's about writing something in the far more recent past and choosing how it's going to be remembered and how it's going to be recorded. So this is something that historians struggle with as well. Absolutely. And if you're a historian writing a uh, monograph or if you're a director or a writer putting forward a TV pilot, you're unlikely to be thinking about the fact that you're going to be confronted with this community directly anytime soon, where for most songwriters, they have to consider the fact that they're probably going to end up performing this song in front of these people live at some point. And what do you do if you come off stage after having just sung a song which suggests, you know, any of the victims were negligent or to blame for their own uh, misfortune? And actually, what's um, interesting about that process too and that performance is that Gordon Lightfoot obviously can't go back and change recordings his original recordings of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, but he's changed how he performs it. So we effectively have a record of the history of his songwriting too. Yeah, so it's not only a song about history, but there's a history to the song itself. Pretty meta. It's a good thing we're covering it on this podcast. All I can say is thank goodness for Notice History. Oh, thank goodness. Man, oh man, the work of the people. Let's pat ourselves on the back. <laughs> so glad I'm here. <laughs> We need you, Nick Day. So we're now just over 40 years since the disaster, and the song remains nearly completely accurate as an account of the event. But it's also become a popular song, especially amongst the families of the victims, which connects them to Lightfoot. The musician says that for both of these reasons, this is one of his favorite songs he's written. So another musician, also from Canada, who has covered some historical events in their songs is Stan Rogers. My personal favorite. You don't say. <laughs> yeah, but I bet neither of you would have ever guessed. I haven't said it, you know, five times already. You, you haven't said it in five minutes. <laughs> well, Stan Rogers is amazing. And he was actually born in 1949. Born in, uh, you'll appreciate this, Nick B. Stan Rogers was born in Hamilton, Ontario. Such a good place to be born. What a great <laughs> choice on his part. <laughs> Stan Rogers is actually mainly known for maritime song and maritime folk songs, but he spent most of his life in Binbrook, Ontario, or in the greater Toronto area. However, his parents were two maritimers who moved away and came to Ontario, so he spent a lot of his summers specifically in Guysborough County in Nova Scotia. So he still was around this culture. He was really immersed in it. It really spoke to him. He found that, that it was just really captivating and really compelling. He became really fascinated by that style of song. And that translated a lot into those songs that he would then write. Unfortunately, he passed away at 33. He was killed in a fire aboard an Air Canada flight at the Greater Cincinnati Airport. So we don't actually have that many songs from him. However, the songs that we do have are really beautiful, and they've really, they've really struck a chord in the Canadian kind of historical song memory. 
And if you don't think you've heard them, if you don't think you don't know Stan Rogers, you've heard all of his songs. You definitely know them. His most famous one is actually the Northwest Passage. And part of why I took issue with Nick earlier saying that Stompin' Tom Connors was, you know, the Canadian legend is because they did a survey a few years back and asked what the Canadian, what the big song of Canada would be, the one that, you know, everybody thinks of. And it was voted as being the Northwest Passage. So... I fascinating. You have the documents. I have the documents. I you, have the studies. Definitively have the studies and the <laughs> research. So we can say Stan Rogers has produced Canada's biggest folk song. It's true. But he has other great songs too. He does. So we'll get into those in a second. The two main ones that I want to talk on today are the Northwest Passage and then Barrett's Privateers. I wish I was in Sherbrooke now. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. <You're> <laughs> so the Northwest Passage is an a cappella song, and it's really very obviously about the Northwest Passage itself, up through the Arctic, going from east to west, and the search for it, which is, you know, well known as being part of the Sir John Franklin expedition. He really uses the song to compare the many journeys and this desire, this this compulsion of trying to find the Northwest Passage in explorers with the desire still to go up and find it and to still conquer things. And he really evokes this parallel between the way that people feel about ex- exploration and adventure and, and trying to grasp something that's out, out of reach. And so while it is historical, it's really about the journeys that we continue to take and comparing these two eras together. Barrett's Privateers, on the other hand, is a sea shanty. And it comes from the point of view of a fisherman who was enlisted. It describes privateering very specifically in the time of 1778, Oh, I wish I was in Sherbrooke now. Uh, (laughs) So it specifically describes privateering in 1778, which was the height of the American Revolution. And while it isn't necessarily authentic in that it takes place on an actual boat, on an actual vessel, for actual people that we can identify with in history, Stan Rogers really attempts to describe what it was like at that point in history. So the experiences of privateers and of fishermen who were enlisted, he really tries to capture that within the song. And I think he does a really great job of it. And without a doubt, he would have made people interested in that period and encouraged like, or inspired people to go and read more on that period. Absolutely. And he does mention the name of the uh, ship. It's called the HMS Antelope. And there were a bunch of vessels that were called the HMS Antelope. It was a pretty popular vessel name. So that's why the authenticity is a little under question. There isn't one that necessarily perfectly fits the descriptions that he uses in the song. But certainly the descriptions of what life was like in those circumstances is very typical and very accurate. I think he's done a great job with both of those songs. He has so many others, I mean, for such a short time, but those two... Anytime that you hear them, I can't help but sing along. He's great. You got to support him. You got to support him. So if you haven't heard the Northwest Passage or Barrett's Privateers, or if you just think you might not have heard them, I encourage you to go and give them a listen because they really capture something about the Canadian spirit. And they're very different. They're two very different events, right? One is the Arctic. It's the exploration of the Arctic. And another is privateering in 1778. And that the Northwest Passage is really invoking a lot of the sort of romantic ideals of the Arctic and Arctic exploration that those explorers took into their journeys that they wrote into their accounts. So it's interesting to see the repetition of that kind of feeling and writing of this man versus environment concept that those explorers invoked. And then Stan Rogers 
continued to use those themes into his music. Mm-hmm. Very Canadian to focus on uh, elements of geography while moving across the country. Geography being one of those things that often tends to come up when looking at Canada as a nation. Absolutely. Yeah, so Stan Rogers, he's got my vote. Stom Tom's also great, though. Yeah, they're, they're all great. They're all great. They're, they're, all, like, they're great. all treasures. They are. They're all national treasures. Lest we forget the time Gordon Lightfoot was forced to open the Grey Cup for Justin Bieber. Oh. Yeah. That's, I mean, Justin, Justin Bieber should have opened the Grey Cup for Gordon Lightfoot. Exactly. Do you know the, the audience that watches the Grey Cup? Oh, it seems like a poor, poor decision on someone's part. Poor decision on the CFL's part. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't gonna, I was gonna name names, Nick, but uh, I, hey, I didn't name names. I named a whole league, <laughs> all of the exec. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> so far, we've talked a lot about folk music that invokes particular events or disasters in Canadian history, but other songs have tried to get at the lifestyle and events that would be happening in uh, historic Canada. One song in particular is the Log Driver's Waltz. This song was made popular for many Canadians in the National Film Board animated short by the same name from 1979. The song was written by Canadian folk singer Wade Hemsworth. After the Second World War, Hemsworth worked as a surveyor and draftsman in Northern Ontario, Quebec, and Labrador, and his tours there inspired the subject for this song. His other main hit, maybe not surprisingly, given his stints in Northern Ontario, was the Black Fly song. Oh, man, I can relate to that. Black flies are awful in they're, Northern Ontario. They're gross. As in tomogamy, and I found ones that are like the size of my thumb. Ugh. They're gross. No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they serve a purpose, but black flies, no. I don't think they, I don't think they have any purpose. <laughs> the National Film Board version of the song was sung by Canadian folk sister duo Kate and Anna McGarrigal. The song is no is not so much about a specific incident as it is about a general historic era and industry in Canada, praising the light-footedness of the log drivers along the river, and therefore, from the song's perspective, their desirability as dancing partners. I can't tell you guys how many times I've been at a waltz and wished that I had a log driver there to dance with me. Hey, you and me both. That's just because the National Film Board imprinted this on our subconscious when we were quite young. It's true. It's still on YouTube. You can find it. It's a, it's a pretty good animated film. Yep. It's cute. The original music video. And once you've heard it, it is with you for the rest of your life. So join us. <laughs> Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, and even still today, the timber industry continues to be major within Canada, especially in Ontario, Quebec, and BC. The log drive depicted in the song was a way to move logs down a river in order to get them from the sawmill, sometimes in a very remote location, to where they could actually be sold. It required men to run nimbly along with the logs floating down the river and break up any log jams quickly before they piled up and jammed. Log drivers were also called, quote, river pigs, but that probably wouldn't make as romantic of a song title. So, you know, the river pig waltz doesn't really roll off the tongue the same way. Pigs aren't widely considered graceful animals, I no. don't think. No, not, not usually. Or attractive, which makes a big difference. Through the song's enthusiastic narrator, a young woman who likes to dance and therefore dismisses the wealthier merchants and lawyers of the town in favor of a log driver who is so nimble on his feet, the song is a kind of celebration of the historical logging industry. Log driving was still an activity at the time of the song's creation in the late 1950s, but not at all like it was earlier in the 19th or early 20th centuries. 
And so the song, along with the Victorianish animation and the film board's vignette, seems steeped in nostalgia for the historical timber industry in Canada, which seemed to be fading away. So it's not really trying to be historically accurate. The song doesn't really give any specific details. It just describes men burling down the white water of the river on logs. It's more just trying to evoke a feeling, but a historic feeling of something that would have taken place for many people throughout Canada's history. So while it's not focused on a disaster, like some of the other songs that we've discussed, or a specific event, it's instead a general historic era, but it's still trying to evoke an emotional response about history through song. It's also extremely catchy. As we've mentioned, join us, please. <laughs> you could also think that, like, Ottawa used to be a logging town, and there are many pictures, many historical photographs of all of the logs and the timber on its way through the Ottawa River and all kinds of different areas. So it's kind of romantic to think about maybe there may have been some log drivers waltzing through Ottawa at some point. It's also a romantic song because the woman in, in question, the narrator, is giving up the chance at maybe a more economically stable life with doctors and lawyers who she doesn't want to dance with to be with people she finds more uh, attractive. Mm -hmm. It really is like, you know, the every man's story of Canadian history. Exactly. I like it. So we've looked at songs by uh, Stomping Tom and Gordon Lightfoot that look at more specific historical events. And we've looked at songs by Stan Rogers and the Log Drivers Waltz songs that are much more about certain eras in history. Unlike more narrative-driven art forms like film or novels, music is often not held to the same factual standards. You don't often hear somebody question the, the historical accuracy of a song the way they might a film. That said, historians do take notes on these things. And as you well know, Nick, because you actually did that. I have done that. <laughs> and the argument can be made that in certain cases, historical songs can be surprisingly accurate. Studies of folk songs, particularly focusing on disasters, are still in their early days, but they show that the songs tend to have minor inaccuracies, lean towards distortions rather than straight fictions, and are well-researched during their writing. While songs tackling historical material often omit a fair bit of context, such as the setup and the after effects, this is arguably necessary in the medium. A song, as we mentioned before, a song can't cover every single event in perfect detail. It lacks the space. Instead, songs tend to drive in and focus on core events and emotions surrounding said events. So Nick, you're, you're telling me that songs can't fully integrate the nuances of Foucault's postmodern theory and history. I might be a little offended that you think I would have anything to do with Foucault. <laughs> <laughs> Studies by Joseph Scanlon and others have shown that songs focused on disasters tend to be both factually accurate and honest about the experiences of those who witness the events. Particularly, they rarely show something you'd expect to see, the myths about disasters. Some common examples are that people panic and that rescuers do most of the, well, rescuing. In fact, people tend to remain calm in disasters, and first responders and bystanders tend to start on the rescue long before outside help arrives. In films and novels covering the same events, they tend to show the myths depicting panic and trained professionals or lone heroes as the only rescuers. This was definitely something that Scanlon, as a uh, researcher who focused most of his career on disasters, uh, was able to pick out amongst these songs 
that others weren't. And it was one of the reasons we focused on folk songs covering disasters more closely. Overall, these studies found that songwriters of songs about disasters tend to write accurate depictions of events for a few reasons. Uh, For one, they wrote songs when they were recent, sometimes only days old. They listened to the media reports of the events as they happened, read newspapers or articles outlining the facts, and even spoke to survivors soon after the disasters. And then they wrote their songs. Which is very similar to what Gordon Lightfoot did, right? He had an article that really inspired a lot of his song, and then he continued to research it. He drew on his own experiences. And also his song was written within a year of the disaster happening. So very much followed the same pattern. Songwriters often rely on the themes that were developed by the media during the disaster and in their reporting of whatever event. Which is one of the reasons why you see songs focus more on the actual events of the disaster and less on what happened before and after. The media is not reporting on that, and that's where they're drawing, that's what they're drawing from to get the details about the disaster for them to add to their song. They're sort of limited in that. This is something that the mine disasters helped us sort of uh, figure out. We saw that unlike most disasters, with a mine disaster, you have something happen, and then the media arrives, and they stay for several weeks covering the events of the rescue. If you lived through the 2010 mine disaster, which involved Chilean miners being trapped underground for a period of a few weeks, you'll remember the constant news flowing out of that story over those weeks, the constant updates on how things were going. For those, uh, for mine disasters like the Spring Hill disaster in 1958, the media also stayed around. And so you see songs like Peggy Seeger's uh, Spring Hill Mine Disaster follow the rescue efforts quite closely because that's what the media was reporting on at the time. And finally, what I think is maybe most interesting about this medium is that songwriters about disasters tend to identify or understand the affected communities. And really, they're aware that their songs are going to be heard by these communities. So they're always striving to give an accurate account that represents the events and experiences of the people involved. Most songwriters want to be able to face the audience the song's about, as many are drawn to the disaster as a subject because they've been to that community or are familiar with that life or work, being accepted by that community matters. It also helps them know what's likely and what's just fiction. And this is again seen in the example of Gordon Lightfoot's The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, because again, he's had to change some of his lyrics, and he's also been more sensitive in the lyrics that he's used, because he knows that he's going to be performing it in front of people who you know, are relatives of the deceased. So it really does, we, we can really see how these factors come into play with folk songs about historical events. And I would make the argument that you can take a lot of this information, sorry, a lot of these points about specific, that are theoretically specific to disaster songs, and expand on them a little bit. Stan Rogers may not be writing about a specific event, and he may not necessarily have to face specific people, but he's writing about the history of a nation, and seeing as he lives in that nation, he has a certain desire to uh, make it positive, make it something that uh, the nation can be proud of. He's also writing in the musical tradition of specific communities. So he has he has this sort of a set of checks and balances in a sense anyways. Mm-hmm. In cases where events were history to the songwriters rather than recent events, more inaccuracies do emerge. But disaster myths are generally still avoided. Interestingly, in the case of the Titanic, songs covering the disasters still stuck closer to history than the film adaptations 
and they tended to show evidence of using the media accounts at the time and memoirs since to tell the story. So there are so many songs that cover historical events, far too many for us to even make a list of, let alone cover in this podcast. But we've tried to give a small sample of just the two main types that there are, ones that are about something specific, and then others that try to evoke more of a historical feeling or experience. And so we hope that this helps you to realize that song really has so many more layers to it than just a melody and catchy lyrics. It's really evoking something. It's, it's teaching you in what you hear and what you listen, or at least it can be. When it comes to historical songs, there are choices being made. There are interpretations that are being done. There's all kinds of elements that go into the writing of them and the rewriting of them sometimes. So there really is so much more there, so much more to experience and so much more that speaks to who we are as a nation and how we remember events. We hope that maybe this will inspire you to listen to some of our beloved Canadian artists and maybe discover some new favorite songs for the future. And why don't you send us a message? Tell us what songs we missed. Tell us some of your favorites. And maybe they can make them into a new boot. Or maybe we can do an extra episode at some point. Either way, we hope that you'll appreciate the history that's already in so many of the songs that we enjoy. And now, you're in the know. Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Emily Cuggy and myself, Robin Mullins. This week's researchers were Nick Johnston, of course, Leanne Getty, Alice Blaze, and Stacey Detlin. With audio mixing done by Emily Cuggy and myself, as well as Anna Kuhn. For more information about the topics we covered today and our bibliography, check out our blog at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can always email us at podcast at nohistory.ca or reach out to us on social media at Notice History. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.